0: This is Marathon Training Academy, episode 419.
1: Thanks to Revel Big Bear, the Southern California race will take place on November 18th, 2023. Revel Big Bear has a lightning-fast downhill course in the breathtaking San Bernardino National Forest. They have free race photos, tech shirts, and an awesome medal that's sure to stand out in your collection. Just go to runrevel.com and use the code MTA to save $15 off your registration.
0: Thanks to MetPro Nutrition Coaching for sponsoring this episode. You can speak with a metabolic expert about your goals and get actionable steps toward achieving better performance in the marathon, half marathon, or whatever distance you're training for. Go to metpro.co slash MTA to talk to one of their experts, and if you decide to work with them, you'll get 500 bucks off through our link, metpro.co slash MTA. Hello and welcome to the MTA podcast where it's all about empowering you to become a stronger tougher version of yourself. I'm Trevor
1: and I'm Angie.
0: In this episode we speak with Stephen Walden, a coach on our team who just returned from a 155 mile run across the Gobi Desert in Mongolia. And don't forget as an Academy member you get access to all of our back podcast episodes training plans from a 5k all the way up to a 50 miler. All kinds of great stuff in there. Find out how to become a member over at marathontrainingacademy.com. So Angie, I think two episodes ago we talked about how Courtney DeWalter won the Western States 100 miler this summer, set a new course record. Well, she's back in the headlines.
1: (laughs) No one is surprised, but she is the 2023 Hard Rock 100 Endurance Run winner in 26 hours, 14 minutes and 8 seconds and finishing fourth overall. Uh, she set the women's counterclockwise course record, um, which was held since back in 2009, and she has the overall course record. So she definitely is dominating in that race, and it's just amazing. Like three weeks ago, coming off another tough 100-miler. The male winner was Aurelien dunand Palaz from France in 23 hours and 7 seconds.
0: So that's fun to hear about these just amazing humans that can run that far that fast But we want to give some props to people that we feel are amazing, Um, just everyday folks out there taking action in their health and life, no matter what age.
1: That's right. I want to say congratulations to my Aunt Virginia, my mom's older sister. She took up running a few months ago at age 71 years old and recently ran her first 5K, getting first place in her age group. And she contacted me about getting a couch to 5K plan, which of course I set her up with. And she did a run-walk method and really just has been loving it. And she lives in Washington state. And even through the winter, she would rather run outside in the rain than go inside to the treadmill.
0: Took up running at 71. Yeah, you just never know who's gonna get into the sport.
1: That's right. It's so open for everyone. This comes from one of our awesome clients, Kofo from the UK. She says, I recently finished the challenging, hilly, and satisfying Hever Castle Half Marathon. It was picturesque with stunning views, a very well-organized race, and the weather held. I'm taking getting first in my age group and fifth overall female as a definite win. Special shout out to MTA coach Nicole for her excellent plan, unstinting support, and being the best coach anyone could ask for. Always celebrating life, and that comes from Kofo. And this comes from a member named GT. He says, I had a random moment of appreciation for my relationship with long distance running this evening. I haven't been very active in MTA over the past few years, but please know that this group has helped me tremendously to conquer my goals of completing marathons and has always been supportive even when I put running on the back burner. I signed up for my first marathon when my wife was pregnant eight years ago after running nothing more than a 5K. I wasn't at risk health wise, but for whatever reason, I felt like this type of discipline training would prepare me for fatherhood. It did that and more as I grew to love it. Long-distance running improved many aspects of myself that I would never have expected. Now as a dad of two, I've let the priority of marathons and running slip to the back burner, but I find myself looking out decades into the future. Will I be fit enough to keep up with my grandkids? Will I be able to run a marathon with my kids one day? How can I ensure that I keep up with the family 30 years from now?
0: Those are good questions.
1: Yeah, things that definitely we all start to ask ourselves. He says, I try and appreciate the moments and live for today while my mind goes off decades into the future. Running and having a plan to keep at it helps me keep that focus by giving me confidence. Thank you, MTA, for the support.
0: It's great reflection. Well, big congrats to all of you out there just getting in the miles. We hope you enjoy this conversation with Coach Steve. Steve just finished the Gobi March in Mongolia. He's going to explain what that is. He's one of our coaches here. Uh, we actually have 15 coaches on the team now. Um, he's a 2.53 marathoner, and he's also 3.30 pacer at the New York City Marathon. And also he's a self-professed running geek who loves to dive into the science of training. And you really do have to pay attention to details in order to run one of these desert races where you, you're carrying your own stuff. And so like every ounce matters. <laughs> <laughs> right. And you're fueling, and just so many things have to be dialed in. I have been waiting for us to talk about Mongolia because I have this Mongolian throat singing music that I wanted to use on the podcast. Angie, you've probably heard me play this song in the car before.
1: How could I not?
0: <laughs> it's so awesome. It's
1: the pinnacle of your podcasting career here. That's right.
0: It doesn't get any better than this. On the podcast now with Coach Steve Walden joining us from
2: California. Steve, how are you doing? Uh, Feeling great. Feeling great. Um, It's a typical Bay Area Saturday morning, which for me normally would mean medium long run uh, with my running group. But after the Gobi race that we'll talk about, I've decided to take three weeks off nice and easy. So
1: are you feeling like your body clock is re-regulated?
2: <laughs> yeah, to be honest, I was surprised how quickly I bounced back physically. Mentally is a little bit different. You know, I was definitely not looking forward to doing any sort of hill repeats or <laughs> interval workouts. But, you know, within about three days, my body was was feeling back to normal.
1: That's awesome. Probably a testament of how well you trained and prepared for this, which, you know, I would like to get into a little bit, um, because this is definitely a more unusual race than a lot of the more straightforward one day marathon, ultra marathon, you're done, you
2: recover. So
0: Yeah, what an awesome adventure. So how about we just start with uh, what is the Gobi March?
2: Yeah, so the Gobi March is one of the uh, four regularly um, run desert races by this company called racing the planet and they've all got the same format they're they're a stage race so every morning you know there's a start line and a finish line right and you go through approximately six stages accumulating time on the course most of the stages four of the six stages are about a marathon uh, and then one of the stages in this case stage four is 50 miles and the other thing that makes this unique is that it's what's called self-supported so You carry everything except for water and a tent in your backpack. So all your food, all your clothes, all your electrolytes, your sleeping bag, your sleeping pad, your medical equipment, everything, it has to be packed and carried along with you every step of the way. And that's a big added challenge. (laughs) So it sounds
1: like you're not going to be overpacking if you can at all help it or you'll regret it along the way.
0: I'm sure there was required equipment. So give us an idea of how much your pack weighed and what was in
2: it. So I got to say, I probably had one of the lightest packs. Um, There were about 130 competitors. I'd be surprised if more than four or five had a lighter pack than mine. Mine was about seven and a half kilograms, which is a little bit over 16 pounds. The average is about 20 to 22 pounds for someone who kind of knows what they're doing. Um, There are some people who don't know what they're doing and they end up with 30 pound packs, which is (laughs) which is a killer.
0: Don't like jars me.
2: of peanut butter. Yeah. Well, <laughs> you know, a lot, you know, food is the heaviest thing. So 4.4 4 kilograms, more than 50% of my pack was food. Right. Wow. And that's being super attentive to what you're packing, making sure that it's calorie dense. Uh, but some people, you know, pack things that are very heavy and very water filled and very water laden. And, you know, that's what gets you in trouble. What kind of food were you bringing for yourself? So, I mean, the main food was dehydrated meals, right? Something that you would find in any REI or camping store. What I had done, which is what I have also done for the previous races like this that I've done, is you test it out before. Just like everything else, food is, you know, nothing new on race day. So for the three weeks before the race, you know, I'm literally making dehydrated meals in my kitchen um mm. from different brands with different things so it's you know it's pasta primavera one night and then it's you know chicken and rice the next to figure out what do i like uh what do i think i'll like after running 50 mm. 100 150 miles and i learned really quick what i didn't like <laughs> So <laughs> i won't mention the brand but one of the meals was this like spicy buffalo mac and cheese That was a mistake. And that would have been a huge mistake in the middle of an ultra marathon.
1: What could go wrong? A lot.
2: (laughs) Okay. So besides your food, what else was in your pack? Oh man, everything. So a lot of the mandatory stuff are things to keep you safe. So you need a heavy jacket because it's going to get cold at night. You need a waterproof jacket in case it rains. You know, you need to keep yourself dry so you don't get hypothermic. Um, Safety equipment like bandages, like blister care, um, you need to be able to take care of your body when things start to go wrong. You need a mirror used for signaling to reflect the sun. If you need to communicate with someone from a far distance, and you can't reach them. You need a whistle. You need a bivy, right? Like mm-hmm. a, a waterproof kind of like case so that if for some reason something goes wrong and you have to have an emergency sleeping bag in the middle of the desert, you can use that. You have to have long tights uh, or pants so that you can keep yourself warm. So a lot of the mandatory equipment hopefully... You'll never use, but it's designed so that if something does go wrong somewhere in the middle of the desert, you know, you can take care of yourself for long enough for help to reach you.
0: So if the race organizers can, um, every day transport tents and set up tents for you guys and have water there, why can't they just carry all of your stuff and, and just run?
2: <laughs> Cause then it would be called trans Rockies. So I don't know <laughs> if you know the trans Rockies race, but they do that. They oh, carry yeah. everything for you. And I think that's the elements that they want people to go through is like, we want to make this hard. You know, we mm. want you to make the decision of what do I compromise on when I'm making my pack? How do I think about this? Right. And, you know, if, if it were easy, A, everyone would do it. But I think you would get a little bit less out of the experience. Right. It's mm. a good way to look at it.
1: Well, like you talked about, you have to test food. You have to test gear. Like, is this lightweight enough? Does it pack down to size? Is it comfortable? You know, am I getting chafing or blisters or mm-hmm. like all the things you have to really Kind of engineer what your pack is going to look like and how heavy it's going to be.
2: Yeah. And then, you know, what you get from experience is also like, how am I going to pack it? Right. What goes where? Because you want to put the heavy stuff actually closest to the center and closest to your back. And the lighter stuff can be on the outside of of the pack and like external pockets. Right. Mm. Um, And from a logistical standpoint, it also makes things a lot easier during the race because every night you know you're taking apart your backpack you're eating food you're taking your sleeping bag out and every morning you've got to repack it and it can be Hmm. really stressful if things don't pack down very easily because you're worrying like oh my god like i'm not gonna be able to pack this thing before the start goes off and you start to panic and you don't want to panic before you run did you have any pieces of gear or equipment that you just really fell in love with you know shoes trekking poles whatever i tried a new pair of shoes for this race so i usually run in um, new balance and adidas on roads and also on trails but i wanted to go with something with a little bit more cushioning just because uh the weight of the pack puts a lot more pressure on your feet so i found these these sock that were just perfect um because they were good on both trail and roads so i figured that like i could take them on any terrain in the Gobi, and it would be great and so i I'll probably stick with them even for the trails around here. Do you know what model they are? People are going to wonder. Yeah, it was a Saucony Exodus Ultra. It's like, it's lightweight. It's pretty cush. Uh, and what's very important for me is that it's easy to take on and off. So these things were like, they worked on all levels.
0: Saucony Exodus Ultra. It sounds appropriate because in the book of Exodus, <laughs> they wandered around a desert. <laughs>
2: <laughs> so I'm guessing that you just brought one pair of shoes. Like that was it. Yeah. One okay. pair of shoes. This is what's even more uncomfortable. Pretty much is one pair of everything. <laughs> so, you don't, I mean, because clothes, believe it or not. So, when I'm looking, you know, I've got to pack some long tights, right? Because it's required. I've got a scale in my kitchen and I'm weighing every single one of my tights to be like, which one weighs the least. And I have a spreadsheet, like, you know, that has every single measurement of every single thing that I'm owning. And like, that's the level of sort of detail you need to go into when you think about what, I'm, what am I going to pack? And so you have to think, how many pairs of underwear am I going to carry? How many shirts? One, the one that I'm wearing. <laughs> <laughs> so you wore the same shirt for seven days. Uh, I did bring a long sleeve shirt, which we can talk about later, which proved to be game changing for not the reasons you would think. And the only extra thing I brought were socks, which also saved my race. Mm. And not for the reason you would think.
0: (laughs) Oh, man. We got to get into this
2: now. (laughs) What else can you do with these socks?
1: (laughs) So you live on the West Coast. How long were the flights and everything to actually even get to the race location?
2: So the flights were pretty simple. It was uh, a 12-hour flight to Incheon uh, in South Korea, outside of Seoul. Had about a two-hour layover, which is perfect because it gave me a chance to freshen up. Down a beer and uh, lots hop of one on. For a while. <laughs> yeah, and hop, hop on uh, the next like five hour flight from Incheon to Mongolia to uh, Ulaanbaatar, and then from there a pretty quick you know ninety minute uh, taxi ride to the capital city. And because I have been in the middle of playing the New Zelda game Tears of the Kingdom. <laughs> I was head down on my switch for all like 11 and a half hours to on. didn't even recline the seat back once. And I looked up and we were landing and I was like, oh, that was the easiest trans-Pacific yeah. flight I've ever done.
0: <laughs> so there's
1: a tip for people. <laughs> yeah.
0: That's a great game. Um, my brother-in-law has told me about it. I haven't played it yet,
2: though. Don't do it. It'll It'll wreck your life.
0: <laughs> <laughs> so for those of us like myself who have not been to Mongolia, what was
2: your impression of it when you got there? Big, vast. Mm. The capital city of Ulaanbaatar has about uh, half the the entire country's population, right? And it's a relatively small city if you're from a big city, if you're from a New York or Los Angeles, right? What that means is that outside of the city, it just just stretches forever. The Mm. grasslands and different type of desert terrains, it just seems to go on like forever and forever. Uh, So it's beautiful flying across it, and then even standing from the city, the city surrounded by, uh, hills and mountains. Um, it's just got like beautiful views all around.
0: Nice. We'll have to go someday. Angie,
1: <laughs> not for that race.
0: <laughs> <laughs> There's gotta be like a trail marathon somewhere. I'm
1: sure there is. In there Mongolia. <laughs>
2: That's what I'm looking for.
1: <laughs> so how long did you have in country before the race actually started?
2: I had about two and a half days. Okay. Um, they require you to get there at least one day before, but I wanted time to acclimate a little bit just to the, the time difference. There's a bit of altitude change. So most of Mongolia, where we were, sits at about 4,500 feet above sea level. So nothing crazy high, but definitely not sea level. Um, and those two and a half days were just enough time for my, my kind of a clock to reset, get a couple decent nights sleep, get some food in me uh, before heading out to the desert.
1: Yeah, because you don't want to start like underslept, underfed, because that's going to be a huge component of a stage race probably is, you know, less than ideal sleeping and hundred not the ability to eat anything that you want.
2: <laughs> yeah, you know, because, you know, like, like we tell all of our athletes, sleep is probably the most important things when it comes to recovery, and then mm-hmm. nutrition, and both of those are going to be compromised during the race. So do all that you can beforehand to make sure that you are, you know, your, your energy levels are topped up hundred percent.
0: And this is actually
2: your second stage race with this company, right? I was my third. I did Atacama in 2012 and I did an Iceland race that they had for wow. one time only back in
0: 2013. Wow. Nice. So you're kind of getting to know some of the people maybe.
2: A little bit. Yeah. I mean, the race organizers, you know, you get to know over time. And uh, I did this with a good friend of mine as well, who bo- who did both of those other races with me. Um, mm. And because it's been 10 years since I did the last race, I didn't know any of the competitors going into this. Unlike Iceland, when I knew some people who, you know, had done Atacama, but really met some great people along the way, you know, during the week uh, that I'll probably keep in touch with for the rest of, you know, my life.
0: that's cool okay so let's go through the stages just kind of give us the uh
2: blow by blow so the first day was uh, about 40 kilometers and it was probably the biggest confidence builder because it was my kind of weather on the first day it was cool it was overcast almost seemed like it was going to rain so really good for a runner right Uh, because there are people who hike these um, at the back of the pack, and they're a little bit less affected by weather. But if you're going to go for a fast time like I wanted to go for, this is my kind of race. It was also pretty flat. There's only one hill in the middle. And so I found myself you know, running with a good pack of people, which was great. I will say like any other race, a lot of people go out too fast. People were so excited you know, after getting mm-hmm. to the start line. So they actually, you sleep there the night before so that in the morning, you're already at, in a camp. And I think people just had all this energy and they did a countdown and once they hit go, people just charged off like it was a five day. I was like, what's going on? You know, I'm like, I'm going to get swallowed up by all these people. But within a few miles, they all came back to me except for, you know, like the the top guys. And, but yeah, the first day was, was straightforward. It was, it kind of lulled you into this false sense of security because, uh, (laughs) It felt great when I was training and thinking about this race, my training didn't go quite according to plan. So I was thinking in terms of finishing, it's like top 20 be great, you know, but really just getting through this, being able to run the entire thing is really what my main goal is. But after the first day, you know, I finished in ninth. And then I started to think, oh, you know, like my competitive side kind of came in, like, oh, I've got to keep this up, keep this up. <laughs> um, <laughs> and that was difficult because starting on the second day, those overcast skies with cool weather all went away. Mm. <laughs> and so a lot of the rest of the race in the middle became about heat management.
1: Wow. Mm. That's tough.
0: So what time of day did you finish uh,
2: the first stage? Um, right after 1 PM in the afternoon or actually, no, just before, just before noon, I think I, the first day I was just under four hours. So finished just before noon. And then what do you do with the whole rest of the day? I'm a little bit different. Most people just go to their tent, you kick your legs up, you know, you start to take in food so you can recover. But um, I think one of the the cool things about being one of the faster folks is that you get to see people finish. Mm -hmm. And like, I just feed off that energy. So I would Mm -hmm. go to the finish line and cheer people on. And then there was this high point, maybe 200 meters away that I would, you know, climb up and see people, you know, a mile, mile and a half away coming in. And so I probably cheered on a hundred people coming, coming through the finish. And I looked at my, my Garmin at the end and I had walked about four miles in the camp (laughs) just cheering people on. I was like, I I was like, maybe that's not the smartest thing in terms of recovery, but at least from like a mental perspective, I definitely fed off that energy. Yes. You can't like hitchhike to the nearest village and go to a pub. (laughs) No, (laughs) there is no
0: nearest village. (laughs) Just... Everywhere you can see for miles and miles around, just nothing. Just desert expanse, sort of pasture land, I should say. Yeah,
2: I mean, you'll see some what they call gurs, yurts, right? But that's how people live. Like, they don't live in cities. They live in in yurts and gurs. And you might see one every couple of miles, maybe, off in the distance. You'll see more horses and more sheep and more cows than you'll ever see people. Mm. All right, let's go to day two uh day 2 was very indicative of a lot of the race right day 2 was also pretty horrible for me um cuz it just kept on going and going and going it was about another day of about 40 kilometers not a cloud in the sky and that's when the sun just kind of like started to really beat down on everyone a lot of people struggled on day 2 even though if you looked on paper pretty straightforward there was one climb early in the stage and then you know some rollers just kind of toward the finish but you felt like you're always running into the sun, mm. you know, and just like that road just seemed to go on forever and ever and ever. Um, wow. And you're thinking, why did I bring all these coats? <laughs> <laughs> it's like, why do I have a puffy down jacket in my backpack? <laughs> Um, but you know, I did something that a lot of people did that day, especially when I started to struggle in the heat is I found someone to kind of like share the misery with, there was this, um, British woman, Emily, who was also struggling in the heat. Her stomach was, you know, not doing so well. And so we just toughed it out together, you know, Mm -hmm. head down, chit chatted a little bit and just kind of like got through it together, which is great.
0: That's a good tip. So if someone's trying to get through a marathon and you're miserable, Find somebody to share the misery with. <laughs> Find someone
1: equally miserable.
0: <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yeah. Don't be miserable by yourself. <laughs> Spread it.
1: So did you have to carry all of your water for that stretch with you? Or did they have like aid stations along the way?
2: Yeah. So they have aid stations approximately every 10 kilometers. Okay. okay. Um, and so they send out people to pop up little tents in the middle of the desert and they can refill you. On some days that are exceptionally hot. Um, they'll actually have cars uh, roving between the two aid stations, so that if mm-hmm. you're in, in trouble, you know they can refill you with water. You can, you know, sit in the shade of the car or something. So they're they're definitely you know making sure that people have water. And in some cases, they require you to, to carry up to two liters between checkpoints.
1: So I'm wondering, you know, like these are very probably rudimentary aid stations. So they're refilling your water. They don't have like portable toilets. Oh no. You oh, no. know, so so like urinating is obviously more straightforward, but like what if somebody is dealing with gastrointestinal problems, has diarrhea? Like, are you required to like dig a hole? What was the situation for bowel movements? Because I know we're runners and we care about things like that.
2: Yeah, yeah. And, and that's that's that was like I think everyone's biggest fear is what happens if I've got to go in the middle of a race. And so you've got to go about a hundred meters off course, dig a hole, uh, and you you pack out any paper product that you use. Mm-hmm. right so they hmm. give you this roll of of bags at the start of the race and it's like this is first of all it's for the paper products people it's for the paper products <laughs> <laughs> you're not following you know your dog around. <laughs> Hey, quick
0: break to thank our sponsor, the Revel Big Bear Marathon and Half Marathon in Southern California. We are so excited to have Revel partner with us here on the podcast. Earlier this year, we were at the Revel Mount Charleston Half Marathon in Las Vegas and had a great time. So check it out, man. Revel Big Bear, November 18th, 2023. You can get 15 bucks off the registration if you use the code MTA.
1: That's right. You've heard us talk a lot about Revel. We really enjoy the races. Um, tons of people in the MTA community have done Revel races and are big fans as well. And so we think you'll really enjoy this. It'll be a great time of year. And you'd get to run from beautiful San Bernardino National Forest into the city of Redlands, California. And of course, every Revel Race is fast, beautiful, and downhill. They give out free race photos, which is amazing. They do a personalized race video in addition to the tech shirt that you get and a great medal.
0: It's a Boston qualifying course, has a nice drop at the marathon, over 5,000 feet of drop. The average finishing time at the Revel Big Bear marathon is 4.0808, which is almost 25 minutes faster than the average. You can register at runrevel.com. Use the code MTA for 15 bucks off. Runrevel.com. Look for Revel Big Bear. Thanks also to our faithful sponsor, MetPro. They've been such a huge help to us. And when you talk about trying to figure out your fueling for an event, whether it's a huge event like what Steve did or a marathon or half marathon, there's really a science to it. Give the folks at MetPro a call. They're metabolic experts, and they can help figure out your metabolic rate and uh, help you get to where you want to go in your goals, whether it's fueling for a race, losing weight, adding muscle, or just overall changing your body composition.
1: One of the amazing things about working with a MetPro coach is that they really help you along the way. I mean, I tend to be a person who thrives in routines, and they have this wonderful app that you can just pull up the food that you're going to be eating for your snack or your meals according to what your macros look like um, during that particular time. You get a weekly call with your coach, and they check in all the time to make sure that you're doing good, that you're feeling energized and are heading in the right direction. And you can get a free consultation call. You can set that up at MetPro.com co forward slash MTA. If you decide to work with one of their coaches, you can save $500 off concierge coaching. That's metpro.co forward slash MTA.
0: Okay, so
2: day three now, by this time, had anybody uh, dropped out? So one person dropped out at the end of day one. Um, everyone got through day two, which is really good. Everyone got through day two. Day three is where things changed. Um, so at the the camp at day two was shielded by this huge like mountain hill behind us. And Mary, who's the owner of, of the racing company, was doing the course briefing in the morning. And she points to it and says, you're going to go over that mountain <laughs> to start the day. Wow. And you just look up and it's probably, I don't know... Uh, 800,000 foot climb, 800,000 feet. That's a lot. (laughs) (laughs) You actually scale the moon. It's great. Um, and so you're, I mean, you're scrambling for some of this. You're going, I think the first mile probably took me about 50 minutes. I mean, that, that's how slow this thing was and you got over that and I'm thinking, okay, great. The worst is over. Uh, but then you got to go downhill. And for me, this is where my, my socks ended up saving me. The pounding of the backpack is really, really hard on your shoulders and your back. And Mm -hmm. going downhill, my straps were killing my collarbone, just absolutely putting all this pressure on it Mm. to the point that I was like, I don't know if I can run because it's so painful. But I had these socks that I packed in the outside of my pack because you put the light stuff on the outside and I just stuffed them under my under the straps. Not sure if it was going to work. And it was like heaven. I was like, oh, my God, I can actually run. That was, that was for me thinking I've got to scrap the entire race and walk the thing because it's too painful. I went from that to like, okay, let's go. Had a little MacGyver (laughs) moment there. (laughs) And so I felt great for the next, you know, about 15 kilometers till I got to the second checkpoint for that day, which is about midway for that stage. So it's another 40, uh, 40 kilometer day. And they say at that checkpoint, okay, the dunes are coming up and you've got six kilometers of dunes, about two and a half miles. And I'm like, okay, let's do this. And I left that checkpoint with a couple other people. And those dunes were just tore people up. Mm. Uh, Nothing crazy if you're just looking at it, but you try to climb some of these. And for every, you know, it's like two steps up, one step back, two steps up, one one step back. And a lot of us went on, went up some of these dunes on all fours. You know, that's how much traction we were trying to get. And two and a half miles of that. People were just left in pieces. Oh, yeah,
1: yeah. That sounds sand grueling. getting
2: in everywhere. Probably. Oh, it was so bad that I I didn't even bother emptying out my shoe because they just would have gotten back in. I had to wait for two and a half miles of that when my, you know, my feet are like stuffed in my shoe um, to finally empty them out. And there was this is where people started to drop out. There was one American who physically was fine. He wasn't hurting. He wasn't dehydrated or anything. He just couldn't get up the dunes. And so he had to pull out, he had to backtrack and pull out to be like, I just can't get up these dunes. I'm going to get stuck there forever. Oh my goodness. Um, And so I saw him in camp afterwards and he's moving fine. He's totally fine. He just couldn't actually get over these dunes. And another another woman, uh, a Polish woman, um, I think she actually passed out during that section. It was so difficult.
1: Oh no. Wow. And if it's hot at the same time and yeah, you're having to scramble and crawl and slide and that, yeah.
2: And it's exposed. And there was, believe it or not, they had a camel, had a camel in that section to help, uh, extract people, to help rescue people. And so she got a camel ride back because you can't get, I mean, you can't just drive a car over these, you know, over these dunes. Um, but yeah, so emergency camel evacuation.
1: (laughs) That's a first. Wow.
2: (laughs)
0: That's interesting, man. So that really made you Fully realize, oh, I signed up for a desert race. This is a desert.
2: (laughs) I mean, that's up to everyone because it was incredibly slow. It was very difficult physically. You know, you're like on all fours, right?
0: Mm. Uh, And you
2: get through it and you still have 15 kilometers to go. You're like, oh, oh, man. (laughs) And I caught up with this guy, Giuseppe, and uh, I actually finished with him because he was in so much trouble that I didn't want to leave him behind. Mm. Uh, He would have to stop and he would just be retching. You know, oh, nothing's no, coming man. up. And I'm like, oh man, like I can't just like she'd be like, see ya, I got a race to run. Right. Um so check out the MTA podcast. See ya. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Like and subscribe. <laughs> I'm Coach Steve. <laughs> um and that that's actually another thing that you'll you'll see people do. And I was listening to uh, another podcast where Ken Wright who was the winner of this event did something very similar He was running with the lead runner on the long day. And, um, he's like, I can't just leave this guy behind You know, we're, we're battling yeah. each other out But like you gotta take care of other people in the middle of, of the desert And so I actually finished that day walking with this guy giuseppe because he was in so much trouble I'd run with him on previous days and I was like, okay, like let's let's get this guy to the finish and
1: mm-hmm.
2: Where was he from? He was uh from italy living in turkey quite an international mix of people that show up to these oh yeah all over the place that's cool yeah i met this guy Dehan from uh croatia who i learned uh ran for president like years ago like these people are all <laughs> over the place he was he, at some point he was like a pro soccer player and then he was also uh, a candidate for president i was like wow yeah, why not
1: <laughs> very successful people right you're just right in the mix there that's right yeah and i'm like i'm just
2: here <laughs> <laughs> Um, but then, so I mean, the funny thing is, so that's day three, right? It starts off with this brutal climb. The middle of it are these sand dunes. No one had, had anticipated that because when you looked at the course profile ahead of time, it was kind of flat because these sand dunes aren't aren't terrible. One big climb in the beginning, but that's it. So everyone's thinking this will be an easy day because the fourth day, Is the 50 mile day, there's no way the race organizers are going to make us go through hell. No, they made us go through hell. And then everyone's at camp thinking, how am I going to get through the 50 mile day the next day?
1: Wow. Mm. Yeah, you're just, you're not even halfway through and a huge day is ahead. That really would start to mess with you mentally and emotionally thinking, do I have what it takes? Do I want to have what it takes? You know,
0: (laughs) you've basically done three marathons, three days in a row. Mm hmm.
2: In this grueling terrain, and then boom, 50 mile day coming up. Yeah. And then the format is the day after the 50 mile day, you have another marathon still.
0: <laughs> <laughs> and not even a beer at the finish line. Mm.
2: No, they actually had beers. Oh they, oh, they did? They had beers, yeah. They had beers and pizza. On the last day? Yeah, on the very last day. Okay. Oh,
0: okay. I'm, that's what I'm saying. Like After the desert day, or the, the,
2: the sand dune day and the 50 mile day, no beer. Oh, no. No, nothing. <laughs> Dehydrated meals and uh, and water.
1: How were you sleeping at night? I mean, were you, I'm sure it's, you know, not overly comfortable. What about like the the night sounds, of the desert, the other people around you? Like how much did that affect you?
2: Not too bad. I'll rate my sleeping as like a C-. minus. Not great because <laughs> I woke up a few times, but not as bad as it was in some of the other races that I've done. There were four people in our tent. It was myself, my friend Mike, this guy from Abu Dhabi called Ahmed, and then this guy from Singapore called Kai. Ahmed and Kai, they slept so soundly. I'm like, how are you doing this? I almost <laughs> wanted just like just to nudge them and wake them up because you could you could tell from their breathing patterns that they were in, like, in a deep sleep and I'm like, oh, I hate you with jealousy right now. But <laughs> so kidding aside, they were actually great guys. Ahmed and Kai, you know, we all became, you know, really close and uh, good friends, but man, could they sleep?
0: Yeah, good for them. <laughs> so it probably cooled down at night if you're in the desert.
2: Yeah, it got pretty cool. There were two nights that were actually pretty cold, and uh, you had to kind of like layer your sleeping bag with anything else you had. If you had like a jacket or a blanket or something. Kai was from Singapore when our tent mates, and so he's not used to anything below eighty degrees, seventy degrees. <laughs> so he was he was definitely the coldest out of everyone.
1: Did you try to like um, rinse out your running gear from the day before to like freshen it up? Or did you just like put on the same stiff, sweaty stuff every day?
2: You put on the same stiff, sweaty (laughs) stuff every day. And that's actually because the race organizers say, don't use the water to wash your clothes. Mm. It's a precious commodity out in the desert. You know, we have to make sure that it's used for hydration, you know, to keep our runners physically healthy, not to wash your socks. But at the end of uh, one of the stages, there was a river and everyone went straight into the river. Yeah. <laughs> Wash your clothes. I mean, some people just like took all their clothes off. You're just butt naked and you're just rinsing and, you know, uh, wringing out everything. Getting
1: sand out of the cracks and crevices. <laughs> yeah,
2: exactly. <laughs> all right. So, day four, the 50 mile day. Let's let's talk about that. Day four, 50 mile day. This is when my long sleeve shirt came out to, to kind of save me. Um, first three days, I'd been in a short sleeve shirt. And for the long day, when I realized how bad I'd been suffering in the heat, uh, I used my long sleeve shirt to keep the sun off my, off my arms and something I hadn't considered until I was running with this uh, woman named Vicky. And we're talking about the heat and she says, yeah, I always take a little bit of water and I just drip it on, on my sleeves to keep myself cool. Wow. And I'm like, how stupid am I? Have I not even thought of this? And I started <laughs> doing that. Every five kilometers, you know, I had a little handheld bottle and I just drip it on the sleeve, just using an ounce or two of water. And I did that for a good 40 miles of that day just to stay cool. And so I'd gone from struggling in the heat on days two and three to really being able to manage it on day four, wearing a long sleeve shirt and then just dripping the sleeves with water, you know, cause on, like I said, the first day, top 10, great. Second day and third day, I was like around 20th, give or take i think one day was 15 that was probably 20 something on the third day through the dunes and i'm like i've got to reverse this and i did that on ironically the long day which should have been harder because you're in the sun for longer but because of some of those tactical things uh, i was able to finish in the top 10 again on the long day you know mongolia is called the the country of blue sky because typically there's not a cloud anywhere and so the sun it just you know, just bakes you. It just bakes you over time. So when you're out there on a long day for 8, 10, 12, 14 hours, you just get hotter and hotter. And so, you know, heat management becomes like really, really crucial. It's not just about how hard you're running. You know, that's really in relation to, you know, what your core temperature is doing based on, you know, all the other factors.
0: I know you mentioned that there's not a lot of people that live out there, but did you, did you guys encounter any
2: villagers or local people? The people that we encountered were, were living in these, these gurs. Uh, you know, these yurts every couple of miles. And typically, uh, from what I've been told, Mongolian adults are fairly reserved. But the kids would love us. I think the kids were fascinated by these very strange people running in the middle <laughs> of the desert. And so they would come out and they'd wave at you and they would go, hi. Aww. And then you'd run 10 feet by them and they would just continue waving and they would go, bye. So <laughs> it, was, it was the cutest thing. Uh, it was really kind of like a moment that It got your head out of the difficulty of the race because it was just, I don't know, it was just like so uplifting and so Mm -hmm. innocent and so nice. But that's about the closest you got to any sort of human connection out in the middle of the desert.
0: I remember um, when we talked to Dean Karnazes when he ran the Silk Road and they offered him horse's milk to drink. So. That ever happened you? you? get any horse's milk
2: or yak No, milk? thankfully, because I know a lot of that's fermented, in fact. Mm-hmm. And <laughs> yeah. I wouldn't want to think like, oh, this will be great and have a big mouthful of that.
1: <laughs> oh, wow. Were there any like snakes? I mean, did they give you warning about things to watch out for as you ran? You know, because I'm guessing a desert, there'll be some sort of like-
2: Critters. Critters. The only critters that they mentioned were, were scorpions. So apparently they do exist in that part of the desert. Um, so they said, if you do have to use the restroom uh, on the course before you squat somewhere, you know, make sure you do a quick inspection. Uh, I didn't come across anything, thankfully, except for uh, what would be a large critter. On the long day, about a mile before the camp, so you can see the camp in the distance, you've got a, there's a highway and there is a tunnel that goes through it and i'm approaching the tunnel following the flags and there is like an 800 pound bull just oh. sitting in this tunnel <laughs> and you have to go through there and you got to go through there and i'm thinking uh. i'll just run over the highway it's fine
1: <laughs> <laughs> you can have the tunnel like
2: <laughs> yeah. yeah. this is yours this is yours i'm fine i'm the i'm the foreigner it's it's good it's good and so i got i finished that stage and i told some of the staff like fyi there's a giant bull in the tunnel And they're kind of like laughing it off. And mind you, I'm fast enough where I finish the long day before the sun goes down. And Mm -hmm. I'm thinking, it's fine for me, but there's going to be someone with a headlamp at midnight following these flags going through the tunnel. And they're like, oh, that's a good point.
1: Freaking out. (laughs) Like they scream, like scare the thing. There's like...
2: Oh, that's a good point. They actually drove some cars there to get it out, honking at it, flashing the lights. This thing wouldn't move. And so they actually just... I think that they stay there with the car just to light up the tunnel so people could see... Hey, FYI. (laughs) (laughs) This dude came
1: to get out of the sun and he's not leaving. (laughs) Yeah,
2: This dude's found a new home. (laughs) Some bulls live underground.
1: (laughs) (laughs) So So do they keep track of your cumulative time um, after every day? And so Mm -hmm. your ranking was based on just every day.
2: Yeah. And so uh, they actually provide results after a few hours after everyone's gotten back to the camp. And so I was actually checking where my overall standing was and what my standing was for the day. So I actually knew if I had to push who I had to try and, you know, leapfrog ahead of in the standings. That's one of the big reasons that on the day after the long day, you know, there was still one more 42.2 kilometer day. It was exactly a marathon. Whereas like I was sitting in 12th and I'm like, I bet I can get in, you know, the top 10. And so I just went for it on, you know, the last long day and uh, was able to do it. Actually, I was, you know, nice. I was blessed because on that last 42 kilometer day, the rain came out. It was raining for the, probably the first 10 miles. It was cool. And I'm like, oh, this is it. This is it. Like, I got to go. I got to take advantage of this.
0: So you put the hammer down. How long did it take you on that day? Around four
2: hours, 15, I think. Nice. Yeah. And so what was your finishing place on that day? Finishing place on that day was sixth. Okay. Um, oh. And the people that I needed to put time on. Most were maybe 30 or 40 minutes ahead of me in the overall standings. I'd clawed back, I think, more than an hour in one case. Um, So that actually jumped me up to get in in the top 10. Thanks to our sponsor,
0: AG1. Just one healthy scoop of AG1 helps you cover your nutritional basis, fill in those gaps that might be missing.
1: That's right. AG1 continues to improve their formula. They've had 52 iterations of AG1 and counting. They includes a multivitamin, multimineral, prebiotics, probiotics, greens, superfoods, stress adaptogens, functional mushrooms, and antioxidants. And they keep all the bad stuff out. So we've heard from multiple people who have said that they feel like their mind is functioning more clearly, that their gut health is improved, and it's something that, you know, we take daily and recommend to all of our family and friends.
0: So if you're looking for a comprehensive solution in your supplement routine, try AG1. You can get a free one-year supply of vitamin D and five AG1 travel packs with your first purchase. Go to drinkag1.com MTA for that special offer. That's drinkag1.com MTA. Thank you. gonna ask either on that sand dune day or the 50 mile day
2: did you ever have thoughts of like what am I doing out here? Oh for the sand dunes? Oh for sure. Oh (laughs) because in the middle of it, you know, after about a mile, mile and a half, I'm thinking, I I don't know how I'm gonna get out of this. You know, there was there was one tree, one tree in the middle of the sand dunes. And I sat under the shade for probably two or three minutes just to just to regroup. And I'm only halfway through it and I'm like, oh man. The reality is you have to get out of it because <laughs> you're in the middle of it. Yeah. Um, so I'm like, let's just go. And like on the second day where I struggled and, you know, walked with Emily, I try to latch on other people in the sand dunes and like, let's just get through this together. Let's just mm-hmm. come on, head down. We all want to stop. But, you know, you can really feed off the strengths and sometimes the weaknesses of other people and forget about how difficult it is in that moment.
0: There you go. And so the final day, that was just sort of a shorter run, kind of a celebratory run. Oh, right. the final
2: day is kind of like the Tour de France. It's, it's simple. It's easy. This was about four and a half miles. Uh, okay. It was one hill climb and then a descent into uh, a town. And, you know, for a lot of people, it's a victory lap. A lot of people will jog or walk with the people in their tent, you know, kind of like as a family, get there together. I was like, I'm going to crush this. Let's go. Like, I kind of <laughs> wanted to, you know, just honor the spirit of, of giving everything. Right. And so Mm -hmm. I was just prepared just to go into the red zone and then push from the start. And that's exactly what I did. Like the the guys at the front, we all just pushed super hard off on that final climb and then just gunned it into town. Uh, And I think that was the right, it was the right way for us to kind of finish our race. Mm
0: -hmm. Yeah.
2: Wow. That's quite a finisher's kick, right? After all that (laughs)
0: running. Wow. (laughs) So I'm guessing it probably felt good to take a shower that
2: day. Oh my God. It was amazing. (laughs) I mean, although you, you think you're over, you know, you think you think you're done. You've crossed the finish line. They give you the medal, put some beers and some pizzas in your hand, and then they say, "Get on the bus. It's seven hours back to town." Oh, oh man, wow. seven hours!
1: They're like I'm gonna need more beer for this ride. <laughs> uh,
2: was there air conditioning on the bus? There was not air conditioning. <laughs> oh, <damn. laughs>
1: everyone's really ripe. <laughs>
2: <laughs> I mean, the truth is, your nose stops working after the second day. Mm-hmm. So. Um, you're just surrounded by lots of different scents and uh, you don't smell yourself. We got back to the hotel, sharing a room with my friend, Mike, and I'm sitting down, he's taking a shower, and his backpack is sitting in front of me that he's been running with for seven days and I smell it. And I'm like, oh my God, that is horrible. <laughs> and that's when I realize I'm not smelling the backpack, I'm smelling myself. <laughs> I was like,
1: Oh, <laughs> 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 oh my goodness. <laughs> So did you deal with soreness, you know, after any of those days of like body parts that were just really stiff and you thought like, oh, how am I going to get through this day? You know, my hip, my foot, like my whatever.
2: Yeah. I got really lucky because I didn't have any mechanical problems, um, which made me nervous because about a week before I left, I went on an easy run, right. With some friends just, we're just jogging on some trails and I sprained my ankle. Um, <sighs> And I'm like, how did I do this? There was, it was a very bushy area and you couldn't see your footing. And my leg went one way and my foot went the other. And that's what I was most nervous about is just getting through uh, with an ankle that I just, you know, landed really bad on. So I actually didn't run for the week before the race just to lay off. I'm not going to get any fitness in the last week. So just take it easy Mm -hmm. Um, and knocked on wood a few times and it all worked out. Um, I, I think a lot of it is paying attention to your body during the race you know, knowing when to push and when to kind of like pull back a little bit, because the strategy for all, all these, for these stage races is like, get to the long day with energy to mm-hmm. get through it. Right. And you can get through that. And then the stage after that, you can run on, on adrenaline, but it means being conservative for the first three days and mm-hmm. then pushing on the long day, head down, and then just going forward on the last day. And, you know, I know my body well enough that I think I rode that fine line between pushing yourself over the edge and kind of like maintaining a stable trajectory for the entire race. That's good.
1: I want to go back to food a little bit, you know, because you had allocated what to eat probably for every single day. And like, what if you're extra hungry one of the days, like having the self-discipline not to eat into your rations for the rest of the week? Was that hard at all?
2: It's tough. So the race says you need 2000 calories per day minimum, Right, mm, So yeah, minimum. they do gear inspection before the race and they, and they say, show me your food, show me your calorie list, show me the calories because they want to make sure that you, you know, you're safe on the course. So minimum of 14,000. I packed 18,000 and I had a plan for what I would eat in the morning, what I would consume on the course, right? So like powders and whatnot, and then obviously what the meal is going to be in the evening. And I think my plan was like 85% good, you know, two things I didn't account for were... Some powdered drinks don't mix very well when you're like jostling, right? So anything uh, with like protein powder in it gets very frothy and yeah. doesn't like to, to mix very well. So in hindsight, it would have gone with pure just like sugar things. So I was using scratch, you know, and I should have used more of that rather than some of these recovery drinks that have some protein because it didn't mix very well. Um, and then the other thing was I didn't always want the things that I wanted when I wanted them. <laughs> Right. Yes. So I timed things like, oh, I need a peanut snack at you know this time after the race, and I'm looking at these peanuts. After I'm like, I don't want you. (laughs) (laughs) There's probably some trading
0: and bartering going on,
2: and there's a lot. Yeah, there's a lot. Um, You know what also happens is that people typically will bring extra food, especially if you not if you've not done one of these races before. I think you kind of like overestimate what your appetite's going to be, and so after two or three days, people realize two things. One, I'm not eating this much. Two, all this extra food that I'm carrying is extra weight in my pack. And they start just like shedding all this food. And if you mm. go into the lost and found, you know, you can pick up other people's meals after two <laughs> or three days. There you go, Angie.
1: <laughs> that be my strategy. <laughs> I'd be the one who brought like 5,000 calories per day because I'm <laughs> like, I'm not going to go hungry. <laughs>
2: And that's like one of the really difficult things is because you're probably burning about 5,000 calories a day for this, right? Yeah, yeah. And most people are packing between 2,000 and 2,500. So you will be in a calorie deficit for an entire week and pushing yourself physically. So it's it's really difficult to kind of like find out where that line of compromise is.
1: Yeah, for sure. So, were you thinking like at some points during the race, like dreaming about meals that you would have when you're back to civilization? <laughs> like,
2: if it wasn't for Dehan, who I mentioned earlier, I would say no. But at some point on the long day, we did go through one town, and the rule is that you know you're not allowed to purchase anything from a store. This is a self-supported race, so you know don't do anything, right? And Dehan said, if they've got a McDonald's, all bets are off. <laughs> <laughs> And I was like, I don't eat McDonald's. But the second he said that, I was just thinking about a Big Mac for like 30 miles. And I'm like, oh, my God. (laughs) Oh, that kind of food is
0: amazing when you're doing an ultra.
2: It's just like It's It's so high calories. And yeah. Uh, What we didn't realize was that there was like literally nothing in this town. So there was not even the option. There was lots of vodka. So (laughs) that was about it. Um, But man. On the long day, 30 miles worth of Big Macs in my my brain.
0: (laughs) That's funny. So did you hang out in Mongolia after it was all said and done, or did you just fly back?
2: Yeah. So my friend and I decided to spend an extra two and a half days afterwards. I'm lucky enough that one of my colleagues at work is actually from Mongolia. And so I hit her up. Uh, Her name is Jobson. I was like, you know, tell me where to go, like what to do. And the, the funny thing is that before she knew what I was doing, she was like, whatever you do, get out of the city, get to the desert. I'm like, job's on. I'm going to spend Check. plenty <laughs> of time in the desert. Uh, and so she gave me some like awesome food recommendations, restaurant recommendations. And so my friend Mike and I spent the next two days literally just like eating our way through a tour of the capital, It was great. <laughs> well, thanks
0: for inspiring our community and inspiring me as well, man. It's so awesome to see these epic challenges that you take on. When you got back home, did you start thinking about the next
2: thing? <laughs> I will admit that. Yes. I was like, <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, it's been 10 years since I did the last one. And I, I think I've forgotten how enjoyable it is, the, the community around it. And mm. you know, I got back and I'm like, God, I hate running in deserts, but God, I want to do another one of these. Um, <laughs> There's like one left, right? Sahara? Yeah. They've moved the Sahara one because of political instability in Egypt down to Namibia. Okay, um, It gets very hot in Namibia. It'll get to 110 degrees on the course pretty easily. Um, mm. But that's the one I haven't done of their regular one. And then they have one in Antarctica. But yeah, I was like, I was texting with a friend when I got back and he's like, like, how was it? And I said, it was, it was epic. It was amazing. And I think every distance runner should do something like this once in their life. Mm. Yeah. Right. Just get yourself way out of your comfort zone, not just physically, but also in the sense of community and connection that you make with other people on the course. These connections that you make, these friendships, um, you know, it's not just for the race. Like it really just continues on for a very long time.
0: Mm. All right, man. Well, thanks for letting us debrief you on the uh, Gobi March. Don't think I'll ever do it, but uh, <laughs> <laughs> it's pretty awesome to, to know that people do it. Men and women just kicking
2: ass. Oh, how many people finished? What percentage of people that, that started finished? There were probably 10 or 15 DNFs. So a, a pretty high, pretty high finish rate. Yeah. So for anyone thinking about doing this, they design it for, for people to finish, right? They mm-hmm. give generous cutoffs for each aid station along the way and to reach the finish line. You know, they really want to make sure that people can can do this. And so on the 50-mile day, for example, they actually give a day and a half to finish it. So mm. there were people finishing the next morning. Wow. Mm. So it's difficult. They make it difficult, but they also make it doable. So maybe I can do it. <laughs> <laughs> Trevor, you too can run an ultramarathon stage race. <laughs> That's right.
0: I have what it takes to to walk across the desert and change my life. (laughs) Steve, keep up the great work. Thanks for the excellent coaching as well, the way that you help clients. It's an honor to have you on our team. I love it. Thanks, guys. All right. Hope you enjoyed that conversation. Always fun to talk with Steve. Angie, did it make you want to sign up for a big desert challenge or what?
1: I don't know. I mean, the whole thing of carrying all of your food and everything (laughs) sounds a little bit daunting. I think I would have to dip my toe in by doing more of like, I was just required to carry my nutrition for the day kind of thing. And, you know, maybe more of a glamping thing at night, (laughs) but it does sound like an amazing adventure.
0: Yeah. After we talked to him, I think he said, I want to find one of those races where they move your stuff. And every night you can sleep in a cabin with air conditioning. (laughs) So thanks Steve for joining us. I mentioned before that we have 15 coaches currently on the team. And all of these coaches are just out there um, taking action in their own personal life, whether it's running ultras, running marathons. Some of them are triathletes as well. If you'd like to get more info on our coaching services and what working with a coach can do for you, please head over to marathontrainingacademy.com forward slash coaching. You can get the rundown on that. Until next time, be safe out there, everyone. Remember, you have what it takes to run a marathon and change your life.
2: Heinö, Heinö, by the shore, my heart is beating. I hear the waves, the